Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24 and verse 33, Acts 5, 31 through 32, and Acts 3, verses 19 through 21. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. I should introduce myself because I did not do that before. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. We're so glad that you're here with us this summer. We expect crowds like this throughout the summer because we've been in two services uh, we've come uh, to do one service for the next 10 weeks, so get here early and scrunch in and, and, and enjoy uh, the air not working as well as it should because there's so many people in the room and all of those things. Uh, we're going to really enjoy uh, this, this time together. For these 10 weeks, we're going to take a break from our study of the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to call it our, the theological vision of our church. We're going to talk about vision for 10 weeks. Uh, since we're all together, and I think that'll be appropriate. But I need to answer the question, why? Why did we decide to go in this direction? Uh, why are we doing this series this summer? And I have a practical reason and a philosophical reason. And the practical reason is that the past year has been a time of enormous change and transition for our church. We saw a number of families leave. Some of them leave and come back, which we're grateful for, but many leave to follow jobs and, and other sort of sort, such things. Key families uh, leave. For the first time, really, in the seven years of our church, that happened. We, of course, sent out about 10% of the church to plant the Southwest Congregation. And at the same time, what's happened, as Bob mentioned a minute ago, at the same time, there's been a large influx of new people to the church. And these people are quickly becoming leaders. So that if you come to a vision dinner or a corporate prayer meeting that we do on a quarterly basis here, close to half of the people at those meetings were not in the church just a year ago. Uh, that, really is, that really is what's happened. And so there's a practical reason. So it's a good time for us to stop and say, okay, what is it, what is it that, that ignited this church to begin with? And how can we really go back to thinking about the things that, 
uh, we believe strongly that God has sent us here to be and to do. But there's a philosophical reason as well. And the philosophical reason comes from what we've read in Acts and the characterization of the early Christians there in Acts 4.32 when, when, when uh, Luke writes that they believed, that those who believed were of one heart and soul, he says, and that they were together. This is 2.44. They were together and they had all things in common. And so the product of the Spirit's work among those early Christians was a fierce togetherness that surrounded mission. A fierce togetherness that, that, was, that was caused by a, a unified vision and direction for what God was doing in the world. And it's what I'm praying for for us as well, that we would find this same fierce togetherness around the mission that God has given us. So we're going to talk about mission, but we've called it, if you look at the slide up there, theological vision. Well, what in the world is that? Well, let me try to explain. We share a common creedal statement with the other churches of our denomination. We subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, but if you go to the different churches that are of the same denominational stripe as us, you'll notice that many of the churches look very different from one another. Some of them are very formal. Uh, the minister preaches in robes. Uh, the services are very litur- highly liturgical. They sing only hymns accompanied by an organ and so forth. And, and, and so s- other churches are, are more organic. They're more informal. They, they just have a very different look, a very different feel. And, and so the same theological commitments, but radically different forms of ministry. Now, how does that happen? How is it that, the, that you know, churches that believe the same exact thing could look so different from one another? And, and, and it happens because there's something between your theological statement and ministry forms and structures. Richard Lentz, who's a professor at Gordon Conwell Seminary calls it theological vision, so I'm just stealing his phrase. And by it, he means something that's more practical than doctrinal beliefs, but that's more theological than how-to steps for ministry in the church. It's the vision a church has for how to bring the gospel to bear upon the particular cultural setting and historical moment they find themselves in. Uh, And this is the key to fruitfulness and effectiveness. Tim Keller in New York has written a book about this. He says this is what's missing from so many churches that are finding it hard, uh, you know, finding a hard go of it, that aren't necessarily experiencing a lot of fruitfulness and effectiveness because uh, this piece is missing. It's not enough to have the right theology. And it's not enough to take what's working somewhere else and just implement it and expect it to work the same way where you are as it does somewhere else. I mean, you know, we can't go up to New York City and see what Tim Keller and the, you know, the mothership church up there is doing and say, oh, we're going to go back to Winter Haven and do the very same thing. Why? Winter Haven's not New York. I hate to break it to you. Some of you guys, that's going to come as a really deep disappointment, I know. You live in Polk County, or if you went to the collegiate high school graduation, Polk County, they kept saying over and over again, and I was just scratching my eyes out. <laughs> Polk County. What, listen, what works in Lakeland doesn't necessarily work in Winter Haven, and what works in Southeast Winter Haven doesn't necessarily work in Southwest Winter Haven, as Jeff is learning. And this explains why similar doctrinal statements can be expressed so differently in churches. And it also explains why churches with right theology can be so ineffective. It's not that they don't believe the right things or that they're not doing the right things. It's that they're not properly contextualized. They're answering questions that no one's asking. They aren't in tune with with what's unique about the place where they're located. And so this is how we're going to work through this. Susan, if you kind of go through these slides... 
you have, the first, you have uh, a doctrinal foundation, and what we mean by doctrinal foundation is what to believe, that there are timeless truths from the Bible about God, our relationship to him, and his purposes in the world, which create a theological tradition, a certain denominational affiliation for us. That's the Presbyterian Church in America. And as you might imagine, systematic and biblical theological statements. And then on the other side of that, the next thing, is there's also ministry expressions. In other words, how the gospel is expressed in a particular church in one community at a point in time so that you have certain styles of worship and programming, discipleship and outreach processes, and certain uh, various um, expressions of church government and management as well. But the middle piece that's so often missing is this, what we're going to call theological vision. And what, what is unique about a theological vision is it sits between those two things. And by it, we mean a faithful restatement of the gospel with rich implications for life, ministry, and mission in a type of culture at a particular moment in history. So that it's unique expressions of vision and values, ministry, DNA, and philosophy of ministry. Something that's very, very unique. Really, it can't be reproduced from church to church. Even for us, even from congregation to congregation. Jeff's theological statement's very different than ours is because he's ministering to a, very, you know, to a different place and to a different people with unique needs and so forth. And so what you see is this. It, it looks something like this. We're going after that middle piece there, and we believe that as we really um, come to consensus about that red circle there, it's going to increase our effectiveness and our success in the city that God has called us to. And so this morning, so 10 things we're going to look at in the 10 weeks this summer that really make up the core of our theological vision. And this morning, it might not surprise you that we begin with the gospel. Or what we're going to call gospel theology. We, if you want to think about what we desire for our church, we desire for our church to be a gospel laboratory. A gospel laboratory. But we've said here that the title of the sermon is gospel theology. Not just the gospel, but gospel theology. And not just, not just theology. We're not, we're not just interested in theology as much as we are the gospel. And the reason for that is because theology can become a righteousness just like anything else. If you don't believe me, go to, go to a Presbyterian meeting. A substitute for the gospel. I mean, we, we don't... I've got to be really careful because this is being taped. But... Um, <laughs> Let me say it like this. We don't, we don't want to just only be known as a Reformed church or only be known as a Presbyterian church. We, we drop our voices when we use those words a little bit. Not because we don't love our theological heritage. I love our theology, but we believe our city needs the gospel. Right? The, the gospel, not a creedal statement, is a living spiritual reality in the soul, the power of God. And so the reason there is no power in our lives at times is because there's no gospel in our lives at times. And the reason there's no power in the church is because there's no gospel in the church. So we've got to start with the gospel. And it's really what you see in Acts. We're coming out of the book of Acts, and one of the things we're going to do as we do this series is we're going to go back into Acts and kind of found some of the things we're talking about on what we see there. And, and, and you see in Acts that the movements, the reason why Susan read from all those different places in Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5 is that the movement in Acts was founded on the preaching of the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down and Peter stands up and preaches. In Acts 3, Peter and John heal a lame man and then Peter again preaches. In Acts 4, they are arrested and Peter is again filled with the Spirit and in boldness he begins to declare the gospel. And then in Acts 5, they're arrested yet again and commanded to no longer preach. And what, what do they do? 
They, they, they ignore the authorities. And they continue to preach. And then, of course, in Acts 6 and 7, which Jonathan preached from last week, Stephen is being executed as he does what? As he preaches the gospel. There was incredible spiritual power in the early Christian movement, and the power came from the gospel. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Really, we're just going to look at this verse and verses in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So if you would look there, you'll see the verse really provides the outline for us. We're going to talk about, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And those four words are really the four points of the outline. Not ashamed, number two of the gospel, for it is the, number three, the power of God, and number four, for salvation. We wanted to define all four of those words, and that's going to be how we walk through this text. So let's look here together. And the first thing we see in Romans 1.16 is our need for the gospel. Paul expresses our need. In other words, if, there, if the gospel is good news, if that's what the word means, then there's bad news too. And the bad news is that we have rebelled against our Creator. We are out of sorts with Him. We're cross with Him. And, the, and this is, the Bible says, the problem behind all the other problems of our lives. We are wrongly related to our Maker and our King. We were made for Him. We were designed to make our home in His love. We need Him the way the flowers and the grass, hello, in my yard, needs the rain and the sunshine. Maybe a little less sunshine and a little more rain. But we're alienated from Him. And the Bible calls this sin. And sin, sin is a condition. It's not just bad things you do. It's a state of being. It's something deeper than just breaking the rules. It's a state of existence and being. And we come to this verse, and we see this word ashamed here, verse, one, uh, verse 16 of chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. And here's how I would define our need for the gospel to you, our sin. Sin is being ashamed of the gospel. Sin is refusing to rest in God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's trying to relate to God on the basis of something else other than His grace, other than the gospel. And there are two ways that you can do this. There are two ways of being ashamed of the gospel. The ancient church father, Tertullian, is reputed to have said, just as Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. And the two errors he was referring to uh, are illustrated on my next slide, Susan, if you would go to that slide for just a minute. On the one side, you have the error of irreligion or relativism. That's on the right there on the slide that you're looking at. And on the other, you have the error of religion and moralism. And, and there's the gospel in the center. And so this is a picture of, of really what we're striving for in all of our, you know, pushing for sanctification in our lives. That there's the gospel in the center. And so you might imagine the gospel as a slick mountain pass and on either side is a cliff. You fall off the cliff on either side and you're dead. And remaining faithful to the gospel requires that you keep your footing and you not lose your balance. You not teeter too far to the left or to the right, but you, you, keep, you keep to the center road. And so you see in the call to worship passage in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul says that in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. It's a very, very important verse there. When he says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count, he means there's no spiritual power in them. There's no spiritual value in them. They can't make you right with God. They don't get you anywhere with God. Well, then what is circumcision? Excuse me, what is uncircumcision? Well, it's somewhat of a technical term for Paul to refer to irreligious people, pagan people, secular people, 
People who live with no God orientation in their lives. They don't pray or they don't go to church. They hate organized religion. Irreligion. What we, irreligion like this. It's one form of being ashamed of the gospel. It's trying to relate. It's saying, you know, there's, there's no need for me to even worry about spiritual things. And we could say it this way. Paul's you know, language, we could, we could recast Paul's language. This is the no faith position or the love without faith position which, of course, dominates our culture, doesn't it? It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live, really. There's no right and wrong. Don't worry about it. There's no moral absolutes. Just be true to yourself and do the best you can, and it'll all work out in the end. Love and accept others, no matter what. That's what's most important. Love is all that matters, not faith, not truth. And Paul say, what's, what's Paul say? No, that's absolutely wrong. That doesn't work. He said that's a form of being ashamed of the gospel. But then you see, then there's circumcision. And circumcision is a technical term for religious people. Paul uses it this way, for good people, moral people. People who believe that doing good is the way to be made right with God. And this is the faith without love position that our culture reacts so strongly to when they see it in people of faith. And here's the shocking thing. Paul says, catch what Paul's saying here. Paul says that religion, too, is a form of being ashamed of the gospel. Listen to what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that religion, religion is more like irreligion than it is like Christianity. Hear that? Religion is more like irreligion than it is like Christianity because religion and the gospel are two different things. So there's a shocking truth. And the shocking truth is this, that you can rebel against God by breaking all the rules or you can, you can rebel against God by carefully obeying them all. They're both the same. They're both the same. They, they can stem from the same place. Irreligion says there are no rules. Religion says follow the rules and you can get everything you want from God. Paul says neither of those count for anything at all. Neither irreligion nor religion can make you right with God. Now let me, let me illustrate this. You're familiar with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a really fascinating book. Dr. Jekyll, of course, if you're, if you're not, if you don't, you know, can't remember the details of the story, Dr. Jekyll has created a potion that when he takes it, unleashes the very worst parts of his inner life. He becomes this alter ego, Mr. Hyde, who does all sorts of terrible things. And in the story, as Dr. Jekyll begins to realize his capacity for evil, it really begins to scare him, and he, he begins to lose control. He begins to not be able to control this alter ego that, that, that comes out when he, when he drinks this potion. And he decides that he's going to clamp down on his selfishness and pride. He gets religion, you might say. He decides he will overcome the bad, that he's done as Hyde by becoming even more virtuous as Dr. Jekyll. He resolves that he will not take the potion anymore. He devotes himself to charity and good works, becomes a very, very good man and high standing in society. And then one day he's sitting on the bench in the park towards the end of the book, and, um, and he's thinking about all the good things that he's been doing and, uh, and how much better a man he's become through all of his moral efforts at self-improvement. And he starts to feel, he starts to look around and see the other people walking in the park and he starts to feel morally superior to them and he begins to compare his active goodwill with what he imagines is their laziness and cruelty and starts to really judge and look down on everyone else because of course he's become so good. And then what happens is to his horror, as his heart begins to soar with self-righteousness, he looks down and he realizes that he's been yet again changed into hide and yet this time without even taking the potion. Now, it's a parable, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute, but what is the point? The point that, that the book is making is that irreligion and religion are the same. Being very, very bad and very, very good are sometimes not that much different from one another. They're 
sometimes just two different strategies towards the same goal, the goal of keeping God out of your life. And that's what the Bible means by sin. Sin is the desire to live your life on your own apart from God. Sin is wanting to play the hero in your own story and refuse to acknowledge your weakness and bow your knee to grace. And there are two ways to be ashamed of the gospel. You can do it through your religion. You can just as easily do it through religion. And that should humble us. And that's why we need the gospel. It's not enough if you're a bad person to just become, change and become a good person. You can do that. See, the problem is you can do that without dealing with your self-centeredness and pride at all. It's really just self-centeredness and pride changing strategies. And so the essence of sin is being ashamed of the gospel. The only way then to solve our sin problem is with the gospel. So what, what is the gospel? That's the second word. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, what do we mean by that word? Why is it so important to us? Why would we take yet again another Sunday to go through these things? And how, how is the gospel different from irreligion and religion? Uh, now we know that this word gospel means good news. And so the first thing that we could say in answer to these questions is that the gospel is news, not instruction. It's news, not good advice. Good advice, of course, is all about us and what we should be doing for God. Good news, on the other hand, is about something that has already been done. The gospel is about what God and what God has done. And so the first thing that salvation, uh, that we learn about salvation is that it is a feat accomplished by someone else for us. Get the difference here, okay? Irreligion says nothing needs to be done. Everything's okay. Religion says, no, it's not okay, but you have to do it. The gospel says, no, it's not okay, but it's been done. It's finished. I've done it for you. See, Christianity is not primarily a way of life. It's not a moral code. It's not a set of teachings. It's a story about what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue us. And you really see this in the preaching of Acts, by the way. It's why we, why we read it this morning again. As Peter stands to preach in Acts 2 and again in chapter 3 and 4 and Stephen in 6 and 7, what's he doing? What are they doing? They're telling the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They're proclaiming the news. And here's the news. You ready? This is the amen part of the story. Okay? Here's the news. Jesus Christ came from heaven. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He died for sins. He was raised on the third day. He has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, who he has poured out upon the church to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to his people. Hey, you got it. There you go. See, there's no hint, no hint in any of that of do this or this or this. Do this. This is what you got to do. Here's, this is all, you know, there's no hint of that. But yet, if you were to ask the average person, what does it mean to be a Christian? They would probably say something like, be a good person and follow the teachings of Jesus. That's not news. And that's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is what Paul refers to in verse 17 here when he starts to talk about this idea of righteousness. In the gospel, he says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel is about righteousness. Our problem is that we're not right. We're not right with God, and as a result, we're not right, period. I mean, Ashley will sometimes come to me and say, what's wrong? And this has got to be maddening to her, because it is to me, but this is a lot of times my answer to that question. You know, what's wrong? I don't know. I just don't feel right. Something's just, you know, in this general vicinity here just doesn't feel right. Okay, a nagging sense something's off, something's wrong, something's not working properly. You see, a thing that is right 
is working the way it's supposed to. And the Bible teaches that we're not right. We're broken. We need rightness. We need righteousness. And so the question becomes, how do you get a righteousness? And that's the question. That's the question. That's the question. So piece of friendly advice, stop spending all of your time and energy solving all the problems in your life without solving the real problem. If you solve this problem, then everything else will start to come into alignment too. So how can we be made right with God? How can we get a righteousness? Well, in every other religion of the world, and even irreligious people, you would hear something like this. Well, it has to come from you. You do it. So for an irreligious person, it might be be a good mom. Well, be beautiful. Be a success at work. You see, these are not just goals we have. Uh, they are a righteousness. They're striving after something that will make that part of us that doesn't feel right feel okay. Some standard that will make us be able to, you know, wake up in the morning and feel okay about our lives. For a religious person, of course, it may be something like, well, be a good person. Be a leader in the church. Have the right moral standard or the right theology. But in either case, it's something you do. It's something you take credit for that you are talented enough to do it or hardworking enough or or smart enough to figure it out, whatever the case might be. But if Christianity is news, not instruction, as we've said, if it is grace and not merit, then the righteousness we need must be a righteousness that comes from somewhere else. What Luther called an alien righteousness, what Paul calls, you see here in verse 17, the righteousness of faith, that is, that comes from faith, not works, that's based on someone else's record, not mine, when, and when you become a Christian, your status with God changes. You get right. That's the message of Christianity. But you get right not because of anything you've done. Jesus Christ has done something to make that possible. He not only died the death that we deserve to die, but he has lived the life that we have been charged with living so that he could give to us his perfect record of obedience as a gift. This is the message of Christianity. And it's what Peter means when he says there in Acts 5.31, if you look down at the Acts passages, he says that God has exalted Jesus as, at the right hand as our leader and savior. That Greek word leader there is a word, archegon. And it means something like captain or I like the word champion, the word, you know, the best. And so it, it means something like this. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, of course, the Philistines and the Israelites are there lined up against one another in battle. And yet they come up with this plan that each side will choose a what? A champion. And of course... Uh, for for uh, the Philistines, it's the giant Goliath. And there's this young, ruddy, small boy named David, and he is chosen as Israel's champion. And the plan is that the two champions would fight one another, and of course, whichever champion won, that side won. So David represented Israel. If he won... They won. He fought for them. But more than that, he fought as them. What he did, it was credited to all of them. And that's, that's the idea here. If you are in Christ, if Jesus is your champion, and all of your hope and trust is in him and not yourself, then whatever victories he won, you have won. Whatever record he has achieved, it belongs to you too. See, the gospel is, more, is about more than just forgiveness. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ... Of course, your sins are forgiven, and isn't that marvelous? But you get more than forgiveness. Can you believe that? You get more than forgiveness. You get a righteousness too. Forgiveness means the slate's been wiped clean. God forgives me, but, but you know, I, for a long time in my life, I really believe that. God, I know God forgives me, but here's my question, and I don't know if I'm alone in this. Please don't, don't make me feel like I'm alone in this, okay? Because uh, that just doesn't, you know, I know God for, forgives me, but I don't really know if he likes me. See, there you go. I'm not alone. <laughs> 
not sure if he really likes me. Does he ever get annoyed with me when I keep doing the same things over and over again, the same stupid things? This is where most people live, and it's because they've bought into the idea that the gospel is just negative, but it's not just negative, it's also positive. You don't just get a forgiveness from your sins, you get a positive, perfect record of righteousness, so much more. There's a scene from an old uh, NCIS, uh, the show on TV, about a man accused of murder. Two Marines and a lawyer show up to arrest him, and they finally catch up with him. They look, they come into the room, and they look at him with such disdain. They speak down to him because, of course, he's an accused murderer, and they're rough with him. He's there in their presence, and he stands accused, and they go to put the cuffs on him and haul him away. And as they do that, a friend who's standing next to them just very gently pulls aside the, the, the shirt he's wearing, and underneath the shirt is the Congressional Medal of Honor on his chest. And as soon as the, uh, the Marines see the Congressional Medal of Honor, they snap to attention and they salute him, this man they've come to arrest. A complete 180. It's exactly what Paul's talking about here in Romans 16 and 17 on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, not in ourselves, in him. And so listen, here's what, how Tim Keller puts this. I stole the illustration from him, by the way, but he says... What does this mean? It must mean that we are covered with his medals. That we are covered with his glory. We're covered with all of the awards and the medals of his valor and his cosmic bravery because he took on evil and went down to death. All that he deserved is now on us. In the story, they suddenly saw the man's medal, which he had won in a former life. In our case, of course, the medals were won by Jesus in his former life. But now, because of him, the whole universe salutes us. Now, now God himself delights in us because we have become the righteousness of God in him. That's what the gospel is. It's about righteousness. It's news. It's grace. It's righteousness. But thirdly, we need to come to a finish now. Thirdly, where does the power come from? Paul says there in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. So the gospel's spiritual dynamite. You see, moralism, religion, moralism can tell you what to do. The gospel can give you the power to do it. Moralism is like railroad tracks. It can tell you where to go, but it can't produce uh, the energy. that You know, the tracks themselves don't produce the energy to get the train down the tracks. And that's the difference. Moralism has no power for change because it only deals with the surface and not the root. See, religion treats symptoms, not the disease. You understand what I mean, don't you? When you wake up in the middle of the night burning up with fever and aching all over, what do you do? Those, those, those are symptoms. But what's the underlying cause? I mean, you take Advil or Tylenol uh, to bring the fever down and to take away the aches, but all you're doing is treating symptoms. What about, what about the infection that's causing the fever? What do you do about that? See, moralism is, sees a problem. It sees lust, greed, whatever the case might be, and it says, you know, stop doing that. Well, thanks. That's helpful. Appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, please tell me how. I'd like, to, I'd like to stop doing that too, actually. See, but there's no power because underneath those sinful behaviors are root addresses that often we don't even, we're not even aware of. We don't even really know what's going on underneath the surface of our lives, and so they go unaddressed. And you know, you know, if you live in Florida for very long, to kill a weed, you have to get the roots out. You can't just pluck it, Bob, you're transplanted from, you can't just pluck the weed out of the ground. It'll grow right back like that. What do you have to do? You have to dig down to the roots and get it it out from the roots. And the good news is is that the gospel addresses the root causes of sin. Moralism doesn't. 
Moralism says stop doing that. Start doing this. It manages symptoms. The gospel goes deeper. It prompts you to ask, you know, there's this thing in my life. Why, why, am, I, why am I doing that? You know, stop doing that. Yeah, you know, that's a good idea. I really would like to stop doing that. I wonder how, how, do I, how would I do that? What's going on here? What's really going on in my heart? What's my heart really want? You see, it, it searches out the infection that's causing the fever and the aches. And by the way, that's the way you should shepherd your heart. It's the way you should parent your children. It's the way you should love one another as husband and wife. Let me show you. I said at the beginning that the sin underneath every sin is being ashamed of the gospel, not trusting in Christ alone, not resting in his grace. So instead of building your identity on your performance, you know, you build your identity on your performance. So no matter what spiritual struggle you're in the middle of, if you dig deep enough, this is what you'll uncover, that the root of all sin is unbelief or works righteousness. And so if you believe your relationship with God is based upon your works and not his grace, then you'll be constantly bouncing back and forth between fear and pride. Why do we sin? Fear and pride. Right? The root causes of every sin, fear and pride. Why is it so hard to be generous like the Bible tells us to be? Well, I mean, you know, if I give everything away, if I give all my money away and all my stuff, well, who's going to take care of me? Fear. Well, well, you know, this is my stuff. I've earned it. I can do whatever I want to with this stuff. Well, that's pride. And the problem, the problem with moralism is it takes unbelief like that and it makes it worse. It's like miracle grow. It's like miracle grow for fear and pride. Because moralism says, be good and God will love you, right? Be bad and he'll punish you. So you're either good or you're bad. And if you're being good, what happens is you, if you're in this system, you know, you soar into self-righteousness. And if you're being bad, you cringe and you cower in fear. So moralism ironically leverages fear and pride to try to create obedience. And we've been doing this in the church for years. We do it to our children all the time, right? Pastors stand up and they say, they, they say, give your tithe to the church or God will send locusts on your life. Fear. Or, or my favorite, give me money and God will give you more money because you gave me money. Pride. We, we appeal to people's fear and their pride to, to try to lead them to obedience. See, performance-based moral training, what you're doing, you're actually nurturing the roots of sinful behavior in your life. Why do we sin? Fear and pride. If we use fear and pride to try to get people to obey, all we're doing is increasing fear and pride. We're making things worse. So Dr. Jekyll found that he didn't just become Hyde by being very, very bad, but by trying to be very, very good, it had the same effect. He tries to fix his badness with goodness, but it didn't solve the problem of his pride and self-centeredness. It only made it worse. And there he was on the park bench feeling self-righteous and superior to everybody else because of all of the good things that he'd been doing. And then he looked down and he realized that he had become Hyde, not in spite of his goodness, but because of it. Only the gospel can uproot unbelief. Because it goes right after fear and pride. It destroys the motivational core from which sin springs. What, what did, what did um, Andrew and Kathy, what did, what did they confess? Are you a sinner in the sight of God? You're, if, you're, if you're here, let me, just, let me just go ahead and say it to you. You're a sinner. An offender of the Most High God. How could you ever be proud? But you know what? At the same time, God loves you. 
and accepts you in Christ, you have no reason to ever be afraid if your faith is in Jesus. When God says, I'm with you, he means it. And when the gospel goes to work, humbling you out, see, humbling you out of your pride, securing you out of your fear, and you become humble and fearless at the same time and motivated by love and gratitude and hope, that's the power. Irreligion can't do that. It can't do anything about fear and pride, but neither can religion. The gospel is the power of God. It demolishes the strongholds of fear and pride in your life. Now, we, I got to do one more thing. See, I don't want you to leave with the impression that the gospel is an individual religious experience. It's so much more than that. We're going to talk about this in the coming weeks. So look at this last word. Paul says that the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. See, we have to be careful here. The gospel is a message about individuals. It's about how I can be made right with God. It's also a message about the world, about what God is doing to heal the world from sin and death. And so in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul introduces us to the categories of sin and death. Sin refers to our guilt. We are guilty of breaking God's law. We stand condemned before him, but sin brings death. And death refers to our brokenness. Sin causes breakdown. C.S. Lewis said that God invented us the way a man invents a machine, and he designed us to run a certain way to run on himself. And so as a car runs on gas, and, uh, you know, if you fill it up with water instead of gas, what happens? It doesn't work. And a hairdryer is made to run on electricity. What happens if you disconnect it from the electrical outlet? There's no power. It doesn't work. We are designed to run on God. Our sin has alienated us from him, and without him, we don't work right. Our lives are broken. Our world is broken like a car that's tried to run on water instead of gas, like a hairdryer that's been disconnected from the power outlet. All of our problems are sin problems, but the gospel solves the problem of sin, as we've seen. But hear me, in doing so, in solving the problem of sin, it also solves the problem of death. If death is connected to sin, if you solve sin, you solve death also. So the good news of the gospel then is not just that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God, but also through the power of the Spirit who Acts tells us has been given to us, we can be healed. The broken parts of our lives can be put back together again and made even more beautiful than they were before. We can be made new. Anybody bought a new house lately or a new car lately? What's that like? Everything's clean and in the right. We can be made new. Salvation doesn't just refer to you getting to heaven when you die. Salvation means that Jesus Christ has come and with him the power of heaven has come down to terraform the world into the garden of God again. That's what's happening. And it's what Peter means in Acts 3 in that passage where he says he refers to the time for restoring all things about which God spoke through the mouth of the prophets. The prophets talked about the day when wine would flow out of the hills. That's a Presbyterian church. You can say amen to that if you want. And the earth would flourish and God would wipe away every tear and everything sad would come untrue because of the sickness, all of the sickness and the sadness of the world is due to sin. But if God solves the problem of sin, which he's done in Jesus Christ, then death would begin to unravel too. Death would begin to unravel too. And in fact, it has. Isn't that good news? I'll lie to you, there's a fifth word. I didn't want to include it in the sermon because five points is a little too intimidating. I was afraid to lose you before I got started, but the fifth word here is, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Do you see the next phrase? To everyone who, what? Believes. 
And I want to end right there. Whether you're a Christian and you've heard all of this many times before or you're here and you're not a Christian and this is the very first time, the application for all that we've said this morning to your life is this. It's not behave. See, the, the, the answer is not to behave better. Don't behave better. Good luck. Right? But the answer is not to behave, it's to believe. Friends, the solution to whatever struggle you're going through is not for you to try harder. It's for you to believe deeper. Did you hear that? The solution to whatever struggle is not that you try harder, it's that you believe deeper. What must we do to be doing the works of God? The crowds came to Jesus and asked in John 6, and his answer was this. This is the work of God. This is the work of God. This. This is the work that I've put before you to do, that you would believe in him who he has sent. Lord, help our unbelief as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray. So we need faith, Father. That's what you've told us. And we thank you that you have uh, not looked down upon us uh, with aggravation in our weakness and uh, the difficulty with which we find it to believe the things that you have spoken over and over again in our hearts to be true. Instead, you have condescended to us in the Spirit, but also in wisely giving us the means of grace that might be aids to us in our struggle, in our fight for faith. If what we need, what we truly need, is not just to behave differently, but to believe differently, if that is the real, if that is the real problem we're trying to solve in our lives, then how gracious of you to come and to, and to give us this meal that we might eat it, that it might do that very thing in us, which is what you promised. And so, as we gather around the table now, we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would come and begin to do that work among us. Help us to first believe differently because we, we really do know from experience, we know that if we can believe differently, then we will begin to behave differently. Oh, Lord, increase our faith. That is our prayer as we gather around this meal together now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We end our service with a benediction because um, the, the result of the work of Christ on our behalf is that the Father in heaven uh, has so many good thoughts of us that the psalmist says if we were to try to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the Florida seashore. And because he has so many good thoughts of us, he has so many good words to speak over us, to speak to us. And that, that's what these are. These are the Father's good words, his words of blessing and favor that go with you. So hear these words. May they come into your heart, cause you to believe differently. So then believing differently, we may go from this place and behave differently for the sake of his glory and to serve our city. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.